Glad you're here this morning. I'm very happy, very privileged that I could be here preaching today. Pastor Aaron is taking a little break. And I'm here to tell you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that something supernatural is happening to you right now. And this ongoing experience is the reason why we rejoiced when 13 people were baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit on Easter Sunday. And it's the same reason why we shout in our hearts, amen and hallelujah, at the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter morning. And I'm here to tell you from the Word of God that there is a battle going on for our mind. Amen. Satan, the great enemy, does not want us to celebrate God in faith in any way. And he will do everything in his limited power to keep us apart from God. And by way of illustration, here's how Satan used his evil influence over a once famous philosopher to hide the reality of God's existence from him. And his name is Bertrand Russell. And Bertrand Russell started out as a Christian man, but he published a a heretical book in 1927 called, Why I Am Not a Christian. And this is what he said about the fate of humanity. He said, the individual soul must struggle alone with courage against the whole weight of a universe that cares nothing for its hopes and fears. The slave is doomed to worship time and fate and death because they are greater than anything he finds in himself. And victory in this struggle with the powers of darkness, the awful encounter of the soul with the cruelty, cruelty of nature is wisdom and charity. Now, the first thing you should know about Bertrand Russell is that his worldview is totally devoid of anything supernatural. And he was a devout atheist, and he's telling his readers to accept human existence as an absurdity of chance. Humanity and all things in the universe are enslaved by time, fate, and death. And since there is no escaping these three things, Russell encourages his audience to worship this dark absurdity. Because somehow the human being will overthrow despair to produce wisdom for alleviating pain and compassion to produce comfort for the weak. Well, I don't know about you, but Russell's philosophy sounds like a recipe for disaster. It sounds like the plan of salvation for the atheist is self-delusion, false hope, and eternal loss. From this perspective, humanity is like a bunch of partygoers on a sinking cruise ship who have painted smiles on their frowning faces while they slowly drown in the frigid waters of hopelessness. But if there is hope for people far from God, how can we expect them to understand and accept something so horrific and counterintuitive as the crucifixion of Christ for God's glory? I mean, should we be surprised when non-believers respond to hearing the good news of Jesus Christ as bad news? I mean, think about it. For the uninformed mind, crucify the Son of God? Really? I mean, 
How outrageous if you think about it, because God is immortal. He's indestructible. He's indivisible, infinitely superior to humanity. And an all-wise, all-powerful God wouldn't allow himself to be put to shame by being beaten and hung on a cross to die. Would he? Would he? I wonder if he would. And we too may struggle from time to time asking, well, how can it be? And it's no surprise that people inside and outside the church who haven't come to a saving faith yet must wrestle with this perplexing spiritual truth. Why is the cross so needless for some and so indispensable for others? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And clearly there's a distinct difference between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. And the difference is revealed in mind and spirit. Now if you would, with that introduction, I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bibles, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. We're going to read 30 and 31, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 6 in chapter 2 and read down to verse 9. Okay, 1 Corinthians 1, verses, verse 30, starting there. But it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom for us, our, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that as it is written, the one who boasts must boast in the Lord. Verse 6. However, we do speak a wisdom among the mature, but not, not a wisdom of this age, of rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. On the contrary, we speak God's hidden wisdom in a mystery, a wisdom God predestined before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age knew this wisdom, for if they had known it, they would have not crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what eye did not see and ear did not hear, or what never entered the human mind, God prepared for those who love him. God's word is so rich, isn't it? So let's, let's look at that. And the, and the thing that jumped out at me at first, the first point, is that divine wisdom is God's mystery in the cross and the resurrection. Divine wisdom is God's mystery in the cross and resurrection. You see, the Bible tells us that we are born in a state of darkened understanding. And all of us at one time were spiritually blind, unable to see the true God of the Bible. We would not believe because we cannot grasp the profound mystery of a crucified Savior. Yet Jesus the Christ is perfectly righteous, he's perfectly holy, and he's unexhaustively redemptive in power and mercy and grace. And for that very reason, for that very reason, he was put to death as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And Paul tells us that the crucified Messiah is, a, is the stumbling block for Jews that prevents them from ever looking beyond the cross to a resurrected and glorified deliverer. And for the Gentiles, the death and resurrection of Christ could not be reconciled in accordance with their own philosophies and mythologies. They had an intellectual stumbling block that prevented them from coming to faith. 
And so it's the same today. The wisdom of the world, the spirit of the world stands against the revelation of God's wisdom. And nothing has changed in that way. But God's ways are not our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. In 1 Corinthians 1, 30 and 31 states very clearly that those who are in Christ have received God's wisdom. It is bestowed upon us. God-given wisdom is our righteousness in Christ, our sanctification in Christ. It is our redemption in Christ. You see, divine wisdom is revealed by God to those who God has prepared to receive his truth. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace, which he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, Ephesians 1, 7. We remain blind until God gives us new eyes to see a crucified Savior and a risen Lord. And notice that our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption would not be real unless Christ was actually crucified and resurrected. God's wisdom is displayed throughout history from Genesis to Revelation. It penetrates the mind like the spikes that penetrated the flesh of Jesus. It's real, baby. It's real. But this spiritual reality based in God's divine wisdom remained hidden until Christ was revealed to us by the renewing of our minds. Now Paul goes on to explain that the rules of the, of the world, the rulers of the world during his time would not have put Jesus to death if they knew the outcome of such an atoning death. But what exactly would prevent the Sadducees, the Pharisees, Herod, and Pilate from carrying out Christ's crucifixion? Well, here's one reason. Once the mystery of the cross is made known to us, something miraculous happens inside of us. You see, a kind of spiritual insurrection occurs within the natural person. We experience what we experience is a spiritual rebirth and a subsequent battle happens where the Holy Spirit confronts our unholy desires in the dying inner man. And the Spirit is revealing truth after truth about who we are in Christ and urging us to conform to his image. We are changed forever. We begin and end our spiritual journey by surrendering ourselves to the will of God in great or small measure. And some of us get very upset when we are changing in small measure because <laughs> we want to be more and more like our Lord and Savior. Oh, Lord, give me the strength to overcome. But remember, the rulers of the world want to put down any sort of insurrection that might take them out of power. And if these power brokers experienced a renewing of their minds by the work of the Holy Spirit, well then, they would have let our Savior live. But as God would have it, there was no spiritual renewal bestowed upon the rulers of the age. There was no spiritual insurrection that would gain control over their souls and topple their earthly kingdoms. They, like us, before we were saved, as Paul says in Ephesians 4, they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. Does that describe you and me before we knew Christ? It certainly was me. And the rulers of this world considered God's wisdom to be foolishness, and God allowed their hard hearts, their darkened mind, and malicious pride to fulfill God's plan of salvation. Yes, the Almighty God preordained the murder of his only son 
who would be king of kings and lord of lords. But for the chosen ones in Christ, Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 22 and 24, he says, you took off the former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You are being renewed in the spirit of your minds. You put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of truth. We are new creations made in the image of a redeeming God. Hallelujah and amen. So what we see in just a few short verses is first that the divine wisdom is God's mystery in the cross and resurrection. God's wisdom is divine wisdom. And secondly, we're going to look at now verses uh, 10 through 16 in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. So let me read that. If you'd like to follow along, 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 through 16. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man that's in him. And in the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who comes from God, so that we may understand what has been freely given to us by God. We also speak these things, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual things to spiritual people. But the unbeliever does not welcome what comes from God's Spirit, because it is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. The spiritual person, however, can evaluate everything, yet he himself cannot be evaluated by anyone. For who has known the Lord's mind that he may instruct him? And here are some of the most powerful words ever written in Scripture. But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We have it. It's ours. And it's beautiful when we see through the eyes of Christ. And this is simply astounding. I mean, isn't it any wonder that Paul in Acts 17 was called a babbler or a pseudo-intellectual while he preached among the Gentiles in Athens? Remember, Paul was preaching the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they couldn't understand a blessed thing he was saying. They couldn't understand his philosophy. You see, the Gentiles lack the Spirit of God to, dis to discern the spiritual truth about God. But we have the mind of Christ. We understand these things because God's gift of the Holy Spirit through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus causes us to become wise. The Spirit of God is our teacher. And the teacher applies God's wisdom to our personal experiences making Christ come alive for us. And we teach and receive the spiritual truths of God and we understand them and we accept them and believe them. And we walk in the way of Christ with the mind of Christ. You know, there is a reason why we have Sunday school and Bible studies and all of those things because it gives us an opportunity to exercise 
our renewed minds so that the Holy Spirit may focus His spotlight onto His Word so that we may know the truth and wisdom. The Oxford Dictionary of Philosophy states that the human mind is the theater where experiences and thoughts have their existence, where my desires are felt and where my intentions are formed. No matter what complex biological and neurological processes go on backstage, it is my consciousness that provides the theater of my mind. In other words, the brain is not the mind, and the mind is not the brain. They are two separate things entirely. They may be contingent upon one another, but they are two things. So in other words, God created us to be self-aware of our thoughts and desires with the ability to act on them. And we are mindful of our free will and we exercise it. So why is it important to know this? Well, from a biblical perspective, there is a sanctified mind and an unsanctified mind. Okay? The, sanct the unsanctified mind is a fallen mind. It is described in Colossians 2.18 as full of false humidity, humility and baseless notions about spiritual things that inflate one's ego. It is prideful, it is heretical, and it perverts the word of God. But the sanctified mind is a transformed mind discovered in Romans 12.12, 12, which discerns the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And this kind of mind is not derived from clever intuition or subjective philosophy. This kind of mind is being informed and transformed by the Holy Spirit who exists apart. Who exists apart from our conscience. In other words, the human conscience and the Holy Spirit are not the same thing. The revelation of the Holy Spirit to the human mind is the revelation of God's wisdom in himself. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit that is in him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. But how blessed are we by the Holy Spirit who searches the deep thoughts of God and then shares them with us. Think about that. From God's Spirit to our hearts and minds. And it takes root and it stays there. What we know, <clears throat> we know that God's thoughts and wisdom are recorded in the Bible, but do we ask the supernatural Holy Spirit to apply His thoughts and wisdom to our minds? Or do we rely on the natural spirit of a man to discern the wisdom of God? And if truth be told, we probably do a little of both, right? When the power of the Holy Spirit opens our hearts and minds, revealing God's wisdom to us in the cross and the empty tomb, we see the reality of Jesus Christ and the promise of forgiveness, righteousness, and eternal life. 
we finally get to experience the Holy Spirit now penetrating and living inside of us, illuminating what has always been planned by God before the beginning of time, our crucified Lord now resurrected and ruling over his creation in glory, ruling over you and me. Now, there's a lot more that can be said from this reading, of course. But the first thing we see is divine wisdom is God's mystery in the cross and the resurrection, and that God's mysteries are revealed by God's Spirit to our minds. Praise God and hallelujah for that. And finally, your burning bush moment, which Aaron likes to call the big idea. I call the burning bush moment. And when I downloaded this, I lost the flames from the font. It was supposed to be on fire. <laughs> burning bush moment. <laughs> I downloaded it for free and it just didn't transfer. Oh well. Did you get the idea? <clears throat> we experience God by drawing near to his spirit. We experience God by drawing near to his spirit. And as you well know that the battle between the old unsanctified mind and God's spirit is an unmistakable part of the Christian life. There is a transformation happening to us. There is something supernatural happening to us right now. The word sanctification captures the meaning of the old me passing away and the new me living to please God. And the indwelling Holy Spirit in me and you is pushing out the old me and the old you because the old us is dying to him. Dying to sin. And what is dying must be removed from the temple of God because it contaminates the sanctified mind and the new creation that we are in Christ. And you remember the story when Jesus is showing uh, his disciples how to lead and he begins to wash their feet, right? And Peter says, not, my whole, not, not just my feet, Lord, but my whole body. And what does Jesus say? You're already cleansed. I've already washed you. But I must wash your feet. Because you see, we are a new creation. God the Father looks at us with all the righteousness that he looks at upon his Son. We are a new creation. But when we walk on the face of this earth, our feet are going to get dirty. We're going to collect sin. But God is faithful and just, and he forgives us of all unrighteousness when we confess our sins, and he makes us clean. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone, and the new has come. Remember that. Yes, we're going to get dirty from time to time, but we have a faithful Lord who will clean us up. We are a new creation. You know, we're beginning to think like Christ and act like Christ and speak like Christ because we have the mind of Christ. And we are beginning to become more and more conformed to the image of the Messiah by the power of the Holy Spirit. But how, you say, how is it done? Well, there's a certain mystery to it all, isn't there? 
But you remember the scripture, draw near to me, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Well, the fact is we all need a spiritual realignment before we draw near to God's spirit. You see, a car won't drive straight unless the tires are aligned properly. And poor alignment of your car will wear down your tires to nothing. You'll get a flat and you'll veer off the road. I did it in a 1974 LTD doing about 80 miles an hour on my way to Denver when I was much younger. And it scared the pants off me. My car was totally out of alignment. And my tires were overinflated. And in about 200 miles, kabam. And I was in the middle of nowhere. I had to call a tow truck. This is the days before without cell phones. It was horrible. <laughs> you see, poor alignment of your car will, will definitely get you off track. So we must learn to align our renewed minds with Christ's mind by calling on our Holy Spirit. See, when Jesus said, follow me, it wasn't a request. It was a command. And he's telling us to get our lives aligned with his. And here's the kicker. We must make a willful effort to put away childish things and focus our attention on the road to eternal life. For the Bible tells us over and over again, don't be distracted, realign your priorities, and follow God. And Paul reminds us in Philippians chapter 4, and I have to go back to this time and time again. Finally, brothers... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any more excellence and if there is any praise, dwell on these things. Set your tent down, put your stakes in the ground, and dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. And the godly things we see in Paul were demonstrated first by our Lord and Savior. Amen? See, we have the mind of Christ. And I'm certain that spiritual realignment requires fasting. And fasting is not done for the sake of fasting. It is practiced to experience God in a deeper way by denying oneself the pleasures or even the necessities of life for a certain length of time. And it's a way to intentionally seek the will of God and the mind of God. And here's a couple of ways we could all fast together. They're very practical. And one is to substitute our daily intake of digital entertainment or whatever large time consumer that's in our life. Substitute that with prayer, reading and studying God's word, listening to sermons and Christian music, attending Bible studies, participating in church ministry, sharing the gospel, yada, 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 as Seinfeld would say. And the second one not very popular, I understand it. I don't want to be strung up for it. But how about we don't use social media for about a week straight? How about we take the focus off of us and put it onto him? Right? I mean, I'm old enough to remember the days without social media, and some kids can't live without them, without it. I mean, I substitute part-time as a teacher in the public school system. Everybody's got a phone. I've seen fights break out in classrooms because people are texting each other. Absolutely true. Absolutely true. Crazy. Um, there are other things that we could do, obviously, to take the focus off of us or deny us the pleasures of life. 
and sacrifice those things to God, to draw near to Him, realign our priorities. Let's get back in touch. I have a Bible study that I attend on Thursday mornings. We're in the book of Ephesians. And we're reading through the book of Ephesians and we're saying to each other, all of us, oh my gosh, this is a deep book. And some theologians say it is the most profound theological letter ever written. And we say to ourselves, why aren't we reading the Word of God more? And we all agreed that we could camp out in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4 for at least a month, at least a month on a daily basis to see the deep truths and promises of God to his people. So if we're serious about the type of fasting that I mentioned, then be prepared for the Holy Spirit to reveal the mind of Christ to you in ways that you may have never experienced before. Remember, as we draw near to God in whatever we do, then every blessing from above comes into focus. And we begin to experience in a real way the love of God, the thoughts of God, and the will of God. And it's more, just, it's more than just a meeting of the minds. It is the mind of Christ living in us so that we can speak with our Heavenly Father, our brother in Christ, in God's ever-present spirit. And we need to call on him. And I think that's what we ought to do right now, so let's pray. Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for your, the richness of your word, for the mysteries that are contained in it that have been revealed to the spiritual minds that you have given us, renewed and restored. Lord, we have been reawakened to see your face, to know you, Lord, in a personal way. So we thank you, Jesus, for your atoning sacrifice on the cross. We rest, Lord, in that wisdom that you have shown us, that he died and was raised again, so that we may stand in the newness of life. Father, I ask as we go forward today that we continually search your word and to be amazed by it, and to take it to heart, Lord, to believe it and to rest upon it. Lord Jesus, you are our Lord and Savior. We believe, we trust, and we receive. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.